Hello everybody, welcome to Health Hackers episode 27. I'm Gemma Evans, a journalist and presenter here in the UK. And this is my series devoted to meeting pioneering people in health, wellness and mindset. Today, I'm with grief psychotherapist, Julia Samuel, MBE. Julia has spent 25 years working with bereaved families. She's also founder patron of the charity Child Bereavement UK and author of the book, Grief Works. She's with us for the next 30 minutes to talk all about death, dying, grief, bereavement, loss, how we can handle it and how we can talk about it. Um, Julia, thank you for seeing me here at your counseling room in London. Uh, I'm curious to know what, what happens in a grief psychotherapy session? I think it, I, I mean, the, I think probably what happens before people get here is the big thing, because once somebody has decided I need to talk to someone about the death of my mum or my brother or my husband or my partner or my child, a lot of the kind of um, work has been done. So by the time they see me, they may be very resistant to talking about it, but also they do, they've actively walked through the door and they want to do something that's different. And so what happens is I ask them to, often I get very long emails, so I know a lot before they come. Sometimes I just get two lines very abrupt. So you, you know, everyone is incredibly different. But I ask them to tell me what has happened, what they're having difficulty with, and what they'd hope to get from coming to see me, what they think talking to me about the death of this person that they love or actually hated, um, how that would help them. I know that everybody deals with death differently, but are there any common themes or stages that pretty much most of your clients go through? I'm, you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talked about phases and stages, and that is the one thing that's gone into the sort of public consciousness that you do these steps of bargaining and um, anger and denial. And all of those feelings are very common, but they're not like steps. They're not like phases that you do one, you exit, you go into the next one. So the thing that I think is very common is um, that you have this dual process. You have this part of you that is very loss-oriented, that feels the pain, that remembers the person that died, that uh, doesn't want to face the reality of the death and yet every day has to face the reality of the death. And they have this other side, which is they want to get on, they want to survive, they don't want to feel this awful pain, they don't want to be defined by it, maybe, usually, um, and they don't know how. So people move between the two, um, between loss orientation and, and um, restoration orientation. And men tend to be restoration oriented. So men tend to want to get on and be okay. They go back to work quickly, or if they've had a child die, they want to have another child. Women tend to be loss oriented. So they emote and grieve and kind of obsess, like with the Sherlock Holmes obsession about every piece of the jigsaw of what led up to the death, what happened, what happened afterwards. Um, but pain is the agent of change. So the thing that's familiar across it all is our relationship with pain. And people now in the 21st century want a, a fast track app that can get them through the pain, do these things, 
I'm out the other side, Miraconda from a grief, tidy, sorted, um, and that isn't what grief is. Grief has its own pace, it has its own time, it's messy, it's chaotic, and it doesn't really care what you want. You mentioned men and women and the, the different ways that they might grieve. Does that lead to a lot of tension in a relationship? If, say, a couple you, loses a child? It creates a lot of couple, uh, difficulty because, for lots of reasons, cultural reasons, often women get much more support than men, mothers. So often men are asked, how's your wife? And they're never asked themselves. Um, so that feeds into this thing that they need to be okay. They need to be the one that's doing the organizing and being all right. Um, but also within the couple, he may dread going home because he sort of sees a wet rag who never stops crying, you know, always looking at the photographs. And she may think he's a selfish bastard who doesn't feel anything. And so the two kind of hold these polarizing positions. And when I tell people that this is very natural to do both, and you can help each other do a bit of the other. So he can take her out and go for a walk, do something nice, help her have hope for the future. And she can give him opportunities to talk about their child, to express the pain for their child. Men feel it somatically very often. They feel it in their chest, in their legs, or they get ill. Um, so by helping men give themselves permission to feel and express the pain, then they find a way of kind of recognizing this new, very different landscape that they have to tread together. Should a, should a woman ask her husband how he's feeling or or should she kind of just instinctively stay back until she thinks he's open to talking about it? I mean, it's very much the culture of the relationship. So the default mode of how they operate normally will be more extreme. So if they were never a couple that asked each other how they felt, they'd find it very difficult to do that. But if there was someone who shared their experiences, um, then, then they would. I mean, Obviously, being a therapist, my belief is the more you communicate, the more you're open with each other, the more you can see what's going on the inside by how you um, communicate it on the outside, then you're not so alone with it and it helps you mm. respond to it. And the biggest single kind of predictor of a good outcome in grief is the love of others. So if they can find a way of loving each other, however difficult the pain is, then that will really help them. And how can a, a man best support his wife if they've lost a child? Is it a case of, again, just being very open to communication? Open to communication, not let it, not wanting her to hurry it. Um, letting her, sort of, there's the paradox. When he gives her permission to be who she is and allow herself to feel the pain, it's more likely that change will occur, that she will adapt and find a way of living again. And it's, you know, their future as they imagined it dies with that baby. So there's a lot, your trust in life, your trust in yourself as a mother and as a father. There's so much that you have to kind of recalibrate and find a way of trusting again. Um, but if he doesn't try and push her, then that helps her and vice versa. So for him, he's to be very patient with her and for her, she can ask him how he's feeling now and then. And when you say men feel it in their legs... They often want to run. Running exercise is really good for everybody. 
because grief is embodied, so men and women feel it. Men often rub their legs because they sort of in the fight or flight shock of grief or freeze. That is that primitive instinct to sort of escape from the tiger that's mm -hmm. in your body, as it were. Um, so, and I think as a couple, walking and talking is really good. So walking side by side where you can have silence, where you can say what you feel, where you're not eyeballing each other, and the rhythm of your steps in union is incredibly helpful. And then you end up in a pub or a cafe or something where you can then do something that's really comforting. Mm. Is a lovely regular way of finding a way of connecting and allowing each other to feel what you feel. Is guilt very common um, when you're grieving? Um, I ask because I know somebody who lost his elderly mother a couple of years ago and he said to me quite recently, I still think should I have done more? Should I have, should I have visited her more? And it's kind of going round and round in his head. How would you advise somebody somebody like that who's feeling guilty. Can I just check in with the word loss? Mm. Because it's the word we use. We use many words around death, like loss, um, passed away, passed over. And his mum, he didn't lose his mum, she died. So I much prefer using the terms that help us face the reality of it, because everything that we do to deny the reality of it keeps us a little bit stuck. That's really interesting. Because I always felt it's a bit too brutal. As a journalist and a presenter, yeah, that it's a bit too frank to say, oh, because his mum died or she's dead, that it just sounds a bit tactless. But it's not for tactless. you, it's true. It's you just got to face reality. That's really and she died. And so, how how can he deal with that guilt? So, you know, guilt is the most painful companion of grief, and it's universal. Um, and it's more complicated depending on the relationship. But I think his aspect of it is all the what ifs. It's now that she's died, there's no more opportunities to go back and visit her. There's no more opportunities to have those conversations, to tell her he loved her or re resolve difficulties. So there's that constant kind of hitting up against a brick wall of, well, if I had, would I feel better? If I had, would she be better? If I had done more, would she have survived? And I think, again, part of our 21st century is that we ha have to face the reality that people die and recognize the limits of our power and the limits of our potency. So when somebody walks through a hospital door, they somehow think medicine, science, intensive care units are gonna take over and the doctors are failing when someone dies or they'll push for their elderly mother of 95 to ha have every possible treatment, mm. which actually might just increase her suffering when actually to go home and die at home, at the peace of home with people she loved her in a familiar place with familiar smells and love is far better. But we find it very, very difficult not to chuck everything we can against this sort of monster death. And, you know, it, it is as much part of life as birth. And the more, we find ways of talking about death with our parents and our partners and our siblings and our children before we die, the less guilt we have, the less regret we have, and the more opportunities we have to actually have the kind of death that will be peaceful and painless. So really for him, he just needs to accept that there's nothing he can do now 
And let it go. He was powerless. He couldn't stop his mum dying. It was the natural order of things. And there's a kind of magical thinking with love um, and death is that if I loved them enough, that love would keep them alive. So somehow I haven't loved them enough, I failed them. Um, and we need to separate the feeling from the fact he really loved her and he was powerless and the two don't get conflated. Mm. You mentioned how families could do better to talk about death especially in the, the run-up to a death, if there is... I think well before you're going to die, really? before it becomes um, something that is full of emotion and mm. complexity. So you talk to your parents about their dying. Well, I did last night. Oh, did you? Well, I said to my mum, I WhatsApped her and said, I'm doing this interview tomorrow with Julius Samuel. And, and I said, well, what is it that you want us to do? And she, she said, yeah, ashes to be scattered at this place where we know she loves. Um, but Did you was, know that before? I think we'd mentioned it a long time ago, but I, I still don't know about my dad. I haven't asked him yet, and that's not been discussed. Maybe Do you I know that whether she wants DNR? Do not resuscitate? No, I don't know that. So if she keeled over and had a heart attack tomorrow, do you know whether she wants to? I don't know that, and that's a great point. I will ask her. Hopefully she will watch this video. <laughs> There you go. Um, I want to ask you about... And your dad too. And, and my get dad. I'm going to forget that. Uh, ask them for their passcodes. Oh, right. Their passwords. What if you have um, an elderly parent who, who won't, refuses to discuss it? You can't do anything about it. So then you have to know that you did your best. They may have a file somewhere that they wouldn't talk mm. to you about, that they gave. Their lawyer is in their bottom drawer, which is their sort of wishes. My mum, who died... Uh, a week before my book came out, actually. Her, f her funeral was two days before the book launch. Um, she put on um, the table on her desk uh, a cutter. She always cut things out. Um, and, and in her big writing, was that she wanted a wicker coffin. And so she knew she was dying, but she hadn't actually told us. But she cut it out, so we went for a wicker coffin. Very helpful. She'd actually organised her whole service. Wow. She told the vicar what she wanted. And we're lots of siblings, so we would have fought, so it's much better. And she knew you were writing a book about grief. She read it. She had read it. Yeah. And so when she did die, how did you deal with that loss? I mean, she was 90, and she, had a, she died at home. Um, I was with her. Well, actually, I went downstairs to boil an egg, and when I came up, she died um, at breakfast. But I didn't mind that. I mean, she'd been dying, you know, that funny breathing for quite a few days so in some ways it was a relief so uh, and I talked to her a lot about her dying and she wouldn't really talk about it I but she she talked to me as much as she could given if she was of that generation she basically believed she was going back to get to be 25 again and be in her kind of lovely party clothes and see all the people that were killed in the war and she thought she was going to be drinking champagne and see people who she didn't see. Mm. So she was quite happy. If, if there's a family and w one of the members discovers that he or she has a terminal illness and is, is going to die, whether it's in months or weeks, what would you advise that family does? 
So the probably the most important thing is that everybody knows the same truth. Okay. So that there isn't a whole lot of secrets. Um, and everybody, I mean, I think what people don't know, they make up, and that's more frightening than the truth. I think the biggest derailer of grief is regret, is not having those conversations or regretting having a fight and, you know, all of those things. So um, if I was diagnosed with a, a, a terminal illness tomorrow, I would sit my whole family down and we'd tell each other and we'd kind of talk about all the what ifs. You know, what if I died tomorrow? What if I died in three months? What are we thinking about? What do we need? And we'd cry together and so that we would be as honest with each other as we can bear to be, but also feel really loved. Because I think in keeping secrets, you keep yourself isolated and disconnected. And then that's a very lonely way to die. Um, viewers and listeners might not know this, but you were a good friend of Princess Diana. When she died, her sons, William and Harry, were children, albeit older children, they were still young. How, how do we speak to children about death? Did you have anything to, did you speak to William and Harry at that time? Or have you since about their mother's death? I mean, I think what's, children, in the same way as I talked about a family system, what I support families is that children have the same truth as everybody else, but in age appropriate language. Because again, our instinct is to protect children from the pain and to maybe keep them away from the funeral and go with an aunt or a family friend so that they don't suffer. But actually children, again, what they don't know they make up. And also when they look back at themselves, at say, you know, a 20 year old looking back at their 10 year old self who didn't go to the funeral, that never really knew what happened with their mum or dad or sibling that died, they're furious. It feels like they've been disenfranchised, like they didn't matter. So, um, you know, I'm working with a family now where, where their mothers died and there are teenage children and younger children. And again, I talk about this family system that everyone knows the same truth, has the conversation together so that everybody feels part of it. How would you explain, or how do you explain death to a child? So I would encourage the child to see, prepare the child. So um, if the parent is dying or the sibling is dying, to see them while they're dying, but also after they've died. So, because what, again, this thing of what you imagine, you know, so I saw a child who was bedwetting, who'd been told about his um, mother's body. And children are very literal. He assumed that his mum didn't have a head because it was her body and he'd never seen her. Other people, other children are told, you know, she's gone to heaven, they've gone to a better place, we've lost her. Children lose things every day, but they find them again. Heaven can be a hamburger joint down the road. So what I say to children is that your mum um, or your dad, whoever, looks like they're asleep, but they're not asleep because they've died and their body doesn't work anymore. And if you touch them, they're cold. They don't feel anything. Um, and I think if we introduce, like if you see a sort of a dead pigeon or a squirrel on the road mm. or a hedgehog or whatever, sad as that is, they, the death then becomes familiar. They know what it looks like. Um, but it has to be done by people that they trust. 
Yeah. And children will keep checking, asking questions. And you may think they're looking for different answers because they keep coming at you from a different angle, but actually they need the consistent same answers. You just keep answering in the same very realistic, factually correct way. And ask children what their worries are. Yeah. So that's what I ask families a lot. What's your worry? What you, what's on top of your worries? And you'd be incredibly surprised what people say. Um, going back to Diana, how, how did her death affect you, given that it was such a public death and the, the media coverage was so constant? I, I didn't watch anything or um, read anything. I turned off the telly. Um, I lived opposite Kensington Palace then. Um, so I... I just sort of did it very privately. I didn't really, I talked to my sort of best friends and my husband, um, but I didn't engage with all the external oh, noise. And is it true that you are now little Prince George's godmother? I am. How lovely, what's that like? I love being his godmother. It's a real pleasure, yeah. So going back to actually something I've heard you say in the past, that unresolved grief can potentially create um, mental health issues in the future? 15%. 15% of, of psychological disorders come from unresolved grief. One piece of research showed. And so what, what does unresolved grief mean? Is that when we're just stuffing it down, ignoring it, and trying to carry on? That is a version of it. Um, I think unresolved grief is... It comes in many different forms. Um, it's often to do with a complicated relationship with the person that's died, or difficult traumatic circumstances of the death, or there's a sort of fractured family. Um, but it's when it's too t hot to touch. So as, as you say, people don't, what you don't look at, you don't feel. And if you don't feel it, you don't find a way of coming to terms with it. So some people, their capacity to engage with life remains the same, so they function okay. But if you have pain one end and joy, joy the other end of this sort of emotional spectrum, if you use all your energy to block the pain, you also use your energy to block joy. So your capacity to feel is foreshortened. And we all know lots of people who feel like if you tap them, they're tin. Mm. And it's probably because they've sat on an awful lot of feelings. Or what can happen is that they don't find ways of expressing their grief at the time, but then a new loss, maybe a smaller loss, um, will bring back the previous grief. So, I mean, you're always in touch with your previous grief because, like, you know, you don't kind of get over death, but unresolved grief will emerge kind of massively in a small when a small loss happens. So the best way to resolve your grief is talking about it? Journaling. Is finding a way of the in sort of incohate feelings in your body that often feel like pain or they feel frozen or they feel like fear. Finding a way of putting those feelings in a narrative that you put the two together and they make sense. So it may be talking to a friend kind of a long time over time. It may be journaling, it may be writing songs, um, it may be talking to a therapist, it may be many different things. 
but it is eventually kind of recognizing how you feel and that you find a way of having a relationship with the person that's died, that you've accepted the reality of the death, you know in a way that you don't deny that they've died, but you you find a different place for them in your being, the relationship continues, so the love never dies, so that it may be that you wear their bracelet that's a touchstone to memory, or you cook their favourite spaghetti bolognese, or you go for a walk where they always walked, or you um, sit on a bench that you've put in memory of them, so that you keep the relationship alive while you've felt the pain of their loss. If somebody, if someone close to somebody has just died, what can they do or what can they say to themselves in that moment that will help mentally equip them going forwards? Is there something they can say to themselves, like a tool they can use? So if someone I love has just died, what yeah. can I say to myself? I think one or two things. One is um, don't attack myself, be self-compassionate. So you feel bad, but don't translate that as being bad to yourself. Um, tell yourself to trust yourself that, you know, this is going to be really difficult, it's going to be very painful, but if I uh, support myself, I will find a way of adjusting, I will find a way of living through it and get out and get some exercise because you that really helps you feel different. If you know somebody, if you have a friend who's, who's someone close to them has just died, you're what using you, diet now, not lost. I'm using diet, yeah, I'm consciously using diet because I nearly said who's lost somebody, who's someone's died. Um, if, if you have a friend and they have, they are, they are grieving, what should you say to them? Because sometimes people want to be asked, but other times they might not want you to bring it up. So track them. So people sometimes don't bring it up because they're frightened they're going to remind the person who's grieving. You're never going to be reminding them that person is always very present in the in the bereaved person's mind. So I think that very simple acknowledging their loss, I'm so sorry that so-and-so has died, and then follow where your friend goes. So if they change the subject, don't yank them back. If they begin to talk to you, listen. So let them demonstrate to you and follow what they do. Should you Should you ask questions or should you just let them speak and stay quiet? It depends where the questions are coming from. If they're from your kind of nosy ambulance chasing curiosity, they're probably best not asked. But if they're kind of like, tell me how you're feeling or what mm. you're having, you know, what's going on now. If they're more about the person that feels for them, then they're very helpful. But the, the best thing you can do is listen. Bring soup, bring lasagna, listen and be kind and be there for the long haul. Mm -hmm. So often after three months, everyone goes back to their lives and leaves you to it. And that's actually often when the real pain kicks in, when the sort of denial is soft, is sort of unfrozen. And um, you know how close you are, whether you're a really good friend or whether you're not. And if you're a really close friend, be the one that shows up and take them for a walk and be there for the long haul. We're nearly up on time, but I wonder if you have any final pieces of advice. Perhaps if you could give everybody a piece of advice, what would that be? Um, 
I think it would be to find a way of letting themselves know that they and the people they love most, as much as they love them, are at some point going to die. Um, and that sounds a bit brutal, but actually you you treasure that and are more grateful for the relationships when you fully recognise that we're all mortal. Um, and I think the big thing is about love, that the more we're able to love and support each other, then the more able we are to weather these very difficult and painful life events. So recognise we're all going to die, we're all going to feel grief. Should we talk about it more? I think so, yeah. And love life while we can. Love each other while we can. Um, Julia, can you remind us where people can maybe read more about you if you have a website or where they can get the book? So one of the things on my website is the Eight Pillars of Strength, which is a very good, uh, it's in the What Help section of um, my website. And my website is www.griefworks.co.uk. And you can get a copy of my book and read my blog and other people's thoughts um, and experiences and lots of resources of where you can get help as well as um, my Pillars of Strength. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you. And listeners and viewers, thank you for watching. You can get the show notes as always at healthhackers.uk. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.